It's good to see everybody. Hey, DJ. Um, yeah, very good. So for those of you who don't know me or don't know me particularly well, my name is Ross Burns. I'm a religious affairs specialist in the Pennsylvania Army National Guard. Uh, I do that about 50 days a year where I uh, dress in camo and run around in the woods with other army guys. And then the rest of the time, I work as like a domestic missionary um, for See Jesus Ministries, and I'm their military discipleship coordinator. So I'm, I'm always hanging around military guys, and I have a great time. I, I, I love my job. I do evangelistic, Jesus-focused Bible studies, um, and uh, prayer trainings and seminars, and I just I get to make disciples in the military community, and it's it's very fun. I really enjoy it. Uh, but I wasn't always doing that. I actually used to be a chef. That was my first career. So I would go around and I'd make fancy food for fancy people. And I'm going to tell you about a story about that actually, where I got into trouble at work. And um, so I, I used to work full-time as a chef. Right when I started going into seminary, I was still doing that career. And the opportunity came up at work for me to apply for a managerial position. I was going to be a sous chef, so that was very exciting. And I interviewed, I was accepted, everything went well. There was going to be a much better schedule. Um, I would have been in early and out early rather than staying late at night. It would have been much better pay. And I was very happy, very enthusiastic for this uh, promotion. However, I got into some trouble. We had a very fancy event for even fancier people at my job. There were like state senators there. It was, a whole, it was a whole thing. And after the event was over, everything went well, and it was time for us to transport all our equipment and all our extra food back to our main facility where all the magic happened. So my executive chef gave us directions, told us what to do, and then a different manager came along and gave us different directions that contradicted that. So the, the four of us, this little crew, we were in a predicament. What do we do? Do we listen to our boss, or do we listen to another guy who we don't really know all that well, as you might have guessed, we chose to do what our boss said, the executive chef. So we, we transported everything back. It all went well. And, uh, but uh, we made one tactical blunder. The other manager found out, and he was not very happy. He made a big stink about it at work. He, it was a whole to-do, and he ended up getting uh, a lot of us in trouble. And there went my promotion. Right? No more sous chef. No, no more chef burns. It was, uh, that was all gone. And... I was very frustrated. I was really annoyed because I wanted this promotion, and I feel like I was, I was wrongfully treated here. I feel like I did the right thing. My boss didn't stick up for me. So I'm frustrated with myself. I'm frustrated with my boss. I'm frustrated with God. I'm like, why did this happen? This is really annoying. Um, but as it turned out, a few years later, after not getting that promotion, uh, here came our first child, Geneva, and here came a global pandemic. And without that extra financial cushion, we were in a tough spot. And we were praying to God. I'm still in seminary. We were praying and saying, like, Lord, we need some other means of provision here. Can you please open something else up? And so we're praying through that, and a surprise occurred. I got an email out of nowhere from a chaplain recruiter in the Pennsylvania Army National Guard. And to my amazement, uh, I talked with him about what it would look like to pursue chaplaincy, and it would meet all of our financial needs, and it was exactly what God had called me into. But I never would have been open to that possibility if I had had that extra financial cushion. So the ministry role that I'm in today, which I love and I'm having a wonderful time in, I never would have gotten that without that uh, period of suffering that God had brought me through. 
So keeping those themes in mind, we're going to turn to our text in Acts chapter 14. So as we're turning there, we're going to be starting at verse 19. And I'll begin reading. 19 of chapter 14. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is God's word. Father, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to preach this sermon. I thank you for everybody who's here. Would you just illuminate this message in our minds? Help us to see uh, what truth you have here in this text. And um, I pray that it would make a practical difference in the way we live our life this week. We just ask for your grace and to magnify Christ. And it's his name we pray. Amen. So the main point, kind of the, the skeleton of this verse, if you'll look at it, the main point we're going to be looking at is God accomplishes his purposes in the church through tribulation and suffering. God accomplishes his purposes in the church through tribulation and suffering. Okay, and then as we're breaking down that main point, we're going to have sort of three stopping posts along the way. We're going to be looking at the reality of suffering, the story of suffering, and then the hope of suffering. So reality, story, and hope, just so you can track along with me. So first, uh, some context of just where we are. If you guys can throw up uh, on the screen a picture of the map, that will hopefully work. Hopefully there should be a fancy map on the slide there. Um, if not, I can do some kind of elaborate. Aha, there we go. Fantastic. So there's a lot of traveling in here. I kind of, the first time I felt this, I kind of felt a little bit like a travel agent. I don't know if travel agents still exist, but they were traveling from this city to that city. So I figured it might be helpful to kind of give you a visualization of what's going on in this text. So this is Paul's, this is the end of Paul's first missionary journey. He had uh, three or four missionary journeys, depending on how you count um, the last one, where he was imprisoned and sent off to Rome. But really, he had three major missionary journeys. This is the first one. It began in Acts chapter 13. Now it ends here at the end of Acts chapter 14. And here's kind of how the trip went. So he, uh, Paul and Barnabas start off in Antioch, which is in northwestern Syria. They travel over to the island of Cyprus, and they, they spend some time there. They go up to what would be modern-day Turkey, uh, on the Mediterranean coast of, the modern, of modern-day Turkey. They visit Perga. They go up to a different Antioch, which can get confusing. Two Antiochs, very unhelpful. Uh, then they go down to Iconium, to Lystra, to Derby, back to Lystra, up to Iconium, over to Antioch, Perga, Italia. And then they go all the way back to where they started from, Antioch in Syria. Well, this journey took about two years. Um, it was the year 40, AD, uh, AD 48 and AD 49. So that's kind, of, that's kind of where we are. 
right? So some context for the exciting trip that we're on. So the first point we're going to be looking at is the reality of suffering. So what is the suffering that's going on in this text on this journey? So I'll take you back just a little bit through the previous couple of sermons, the one that uh, Jonathan Sine preached last week and then Gibson the week before. So there are two cities that we were in before Lystra. There was Antioch in Pisidia, which is the no- most northern one that we're in, and then Iconium, and then in Lystra. So those three cities all together. Um, Paul and Barnabas arrive in Antioch, that most northern city, and they're preaching this wonderful message. Whole crowds are coming to hear them, and everybody is so enthusiastic. But then some enemies of Paul, some Jews who are filled with jealousy and filled with contempt, began to spread lies about them, began to contradict what Paul and Barnabas were saying, and they were driven out of the city as a result. So then they go to Iconium, which is the beginning of chapter 14. And the same thing happened. They're having this wonderful audience. People are super interested in hearing about this Jesus story and how he fulfilled all these prophecies of the Old Testament. But then some jealous Jews come um, and... They're very unhappy about this message, and they spread lies about Paul and about Barnabas, and then again, they're driven out of the city. So now we get to Lystra, which was what Jonathan preached on last week. They're in a new city with a fresh start, and they hopefully haven't realized the trend that's starting to develop here. So something really neat happens, different than the other two cities. God actually does a miraculous, miraculous miracle. He does a wonderful thing, and Paul is able to heal, heal a man who's been crippled from birth. This is something that actually Jesus did in his own ministry, which was an amazing thing that people were not used to. People don't get healed who've been crippled from birth. That's not something that happens. But that happens, the crowds are amazed, and Paul and Barnabas can hardly restrain them from worshiping them as Greek or Roman gods. This is an incredible scene. Imagine how Paul and Barnabas must have felt at this moment. They're in a new city. They've got a crowd, a a whole city, eager to hear the message that they're preaching. They just performed this miracle unequaled in in their lifetimes. And they are super pumped to be able to start their evangelism in this city. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas and Derby. So that's a bummer, right? This was going in the right direction, there were miracles happening, and then all of a sudden, Paul gets stoned. That's not, a, that's not the direction that we were hoping that would go in. And we're going to, as we look at the reality of suffering in this passage, we're going to look at three specific examples of suffering that Paul, especially, and the other disciples endure. So first, there's an emotional suffering that Paul endures. So his Jewish enemies are spreading uh, lies about him. They're fueled by jealousy. And think about how you would feel, right? You're doing your best. You're trying to teach the message of Jesus. You're in this new city. And then people come along and... Um, what seemed like was going to be a great opportunity is now becoming a disaster. You'd feel disappointed. You'd feel confused. Why would God let this happen? Doesn't he want the people of Lystra to come to know Jesus? And more than this emotional suffering, um, think about what it would have been like to endure this physical suffering that Paul is going through. Yeah, have you ever stopped to think about, maybe you haven't, it's probably not a normal thing to think about, but what would it be like to be stoned to death? 
to have rocks thrown at you until you die, what would that be like? Now, the closest thing for me is I remember playing um, baseball as a kid, and I was terrible at baseball. I was like, um, I was really bad at baseball as a, as a little leaguer. And one day, I was trying to catch a pop fly, and you can guess how that went. I missed it, and it smashed me right in the nose. And um, it hurt. I started bleeding everywhere, and I was like, baseball is the worst sport ever created. This is terrible. And it's funny, that experience was 20 or 25 years ago. It was a long time ago, but I still remember what it felt like vividly. And it's a shocking thing to get struck by a baseball in the face. And I imagine a rock is probably about the same level of discomfort. But now imagine that you have 100 people throwing baseballs at you, and they're angry, and they're furious with you. And they drag you out of the city on top of that, showing not only that they want violence to happen to you, but that they're disgusted with you. Like, you're not even good enough to die in their city. They took you outside. Oh boy, is right. Paul, at this point, would have felt alone. He would have felt abandoned. He would have been dizzied. Uh, he would have been in extreme pain, believing that he was near death. And this is how it was all going to end. How long do you think it would have gone on? Like 60 seconds? Five minutes? Longer? What an awful process. So there's emotional suffering, there's physical suffering, and then think also with me about the spiritual suffering that he would have gone through. And, th and think about this. This is not the first stoning that Paul has participated in. Paul, of course, used to be an enemy of the church. So much so that at one point, he supported and encouraged the stoning of Stephen, who was the first martyr of the Christian church, and he looked on with joy at each rock that uh, the crowd hurled at Stephen's lifeless body. Now imagine how Paul feels at this moment, having himself participated in the stoning of an innocent man, gladly watching Stephen die, only 13 years later to experience the exact same thing and yet be miraculously spared. He'd be, he'd be saying, why me, Lord? Why didn't you raise up Stephen? Don't I deserve to be dead instead of him? Imagine the guilt he would feel. All those memories come flooding back in. What a whirlwind of emotional and physical and spiritual suffering that you can see here. And you know, when I look around the room, I see a lot of those categories represented as well. I see my brothers and sisters who have siblings who've walked away from the faith. I see parents with wayward adult children I see people with stressful and toxic work environments that they hate going to every day. I see uh, parents, people with parents and brothers and sisters who are no longer with us. I see cancer survivors. I see the lingering effects of accidents. I see those to whom doctors have said, well, we don't know what's wrong with you, I'm sorry. All the tests came back negative. I see people struggling with the weight of past sins wishing you hadn't done that, willing to give anything to take back the thing that you said, and you replay it in your mind every day, every day you think about it. And though none of us have ever been stoned to death, like Paul almost was, we can all relate to what Paul and the disciples are going through here. And we can see the reality of suffering in the Christian life. So that's the first point. And then secondly, what we're going to look at is the story of suffering. Now, what do I mean by the story of suffering? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
Look here at the message that Paul preaches to these city churches following his stoning. So he says in verse 21, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. So Paul actually, after he's stoned, he goes to Derby, and then he goes back to Lystra, the place where he was stoned. Then he goes to Iconium, and then to Antioch, which were the exact places where he was persecuted the hardest. Then he appointed elders in every church, and just a, a brief aside here, elder is another word for bishop or presbyter or pastor. These are all synonymous terms for the same office in the New Testament. Um, and these elders appointed by Paul were appointed by prayer and fasting, and then they were committed to the Lord. So what was Paul's message to these elders? What was his message to their flock as well? How did he prepare them for the task ahead of them and for the likely persecution and suffering that was on their way. Verse 22 is so powerful. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Let's slow down here for a second. This verse is so impactful. So he strengthens the souls of the disciples. The word strengthens is really neat. Strengthens is a normal word, but uh, there are many ways in Greek of saying strengthens. And this particular way is uh, episteridzontes, which is uh, a special word. It's like, almost like glue. It's almost like, um, picture, picture an athlete who's recovering from a torn ACL. Okay? And after surgery and physical therapy, the lig- ligament is now strengthened. And it gives them structural support, and it gives them confidence to stand back up again, and to start walking, and to start running, and to start doing his activities. That's what the message Paul is giving does for the faith of the people in these churches. It strengthens them. So how does Paul do this? How does Paul strengthen them? What message is he giving them? Well, he reminds them of the story of their suffering. And here it is. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's a mysterious way of talking, isn't it? That's interesting. And this is the encouraging teaching that he's offering us. Again, let's slow down. So through many, uh, through many afflictions, through many sufferings, the, the word there, we're going to go Greek again, is flipsis, and it's a Greek metaphor. It means, uh, literally, it means a pressing together, a squeezing, a compression and it's used idiomatically, it's used metaphorically in the Greek language to describe suffering and affliction. But picture that, picture that, that squeezing. That's what's happening to them. So through many squeezings or compressions, we must enter the kingdom of God. An interesting other occurrence of this word in the New Testament is Matthew 7:14, which is a famous passage that you've heard before, but uh, probably didn't realize this word was hiding there under the surface. So enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard or compressed or flipsies. The way is compressed that leads to life, and those who find it are few. 
So the encouragement is that we are strengthened by knowing that we enter the kingdom of God through afflictions or compressions or being squeezed. That still might not be abundantly clear. How does that help me? How does that encourage me? How does that strengthen me? Here's something that will help. Okay, here's something that will help. Picture in your mind, if, if someone was to ask you, how would you draw the gospel as a graph? Like if you were going to put it on in XY coordinates, draw it on a graph, what would it look like? What would the gospel look like? Dramatic pause as I drink. What would it look like if you had to draw the gospel? Well, the gospel is the death, the burial, and then the resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins of God's people. That's what the gospel is, right? That, that's what we proclaim the gospel to be. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And one of my mentors, Paul Miller, uh, calls, the gospel, uh, calls the graft depiction of the gospel, and he calls it a J-curve. And I think it's a really helpful way of looking at it. It's kind of shaped like a J, which also happens to be the first letter of Jesus' name. So not only is this J-curve the shape of the gospel, um, but it's also the shape of Jesus' life. So every moment of suffering was a J-curve for Jesus. And think of Jesus' temptation in the desert as an example. So what happens with Jesus? He's, um, he had just been baptized, everything's going well, and then he goes and suffers in the desert for 40 days without food or water, and he's tempted by Satan. And he's at the bottom of that J-curve, having a miserable time, but he trusts in God, he relies on the Spirit, and then after 40 days, he is triumphant over Satan. He comes out on the other side with a resurrection, if you, if you will. Or, another example, think about Jesus loving the woman at the well in John chapter 4. So he's talking to this woman who's had a very interesting past, shall we say, and people, are, uh, people begin to look at him and say, what is he doing with her? Why is he spending time with that woman? So Jesus here goes through a reputation death, if you will. And then on the other side, because he loved this woman and spent time with her, now she's going around to everybody she knows in the city and saying, um, come see this man who told me everything uh, I ever did. Come see this man. You have to see him. So think about that. So it's, it's, the, J sh- it's the J shape. So a death, a burial, and a resurrection. So not, um, not only is this the shape of Jesus' life, but it is also the shape of the lives of all of his followers. In this very passage, I can spot at least four J-curves. There are more, but I'll only give you four. So the first and most obvious J-curve would be Paul's stoning, getting stoned, people thinking he's dead, and then all of a sudden him getting up and saying, eh, no big deal, <laughs> on to the next city, guys. So yeah, that death, burial, resurrection. Or the second example could be uh, the Jewish rejection of the message of Jesus. Right? This thing that was going so well, everything was going great, and then the crowds ultimately rejected him because of uh, a certain faction of Jews. And, but then that led to the salvation of the Gentiles. Right? Now the Gentiles were beginning to hear this in mass. Another example would be, think about the murder of Stephen, right? How we talked about before, Stephen was killed by stones. And then after that, the church dispersed all over the Roman world. They were no longer concentrated in one place. Now they're dispersed. So that's not a good, you know, that's maybe not a good uh, way of growing a church. But as it turns out, the church, after it was spread out through all of the Roman world, then began to spread rapidly as a result. 
Paul is going to all these communities and finding people that are very prepared for the message of Jesus. And I'll give you one more, one more J-curve in this passage. Uh, and the fourth one, this, this one's a little bit harder to see. It's actually in Galatians 4. Uh, so, do you still have the map up? Oh, very good. So, Lystra and Derby, well, Derby's kind of on the border, but especially Lystra and Iconium are churches in Galatia. So, when Paul is writing the epistles to the Galatians, he's writing to those churches. So, it just, that's kind of interesting to keep in mind. So, Paul tells the churches in Galatians, he tells them, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So the only reason any of this happened, the only reason he had this, this movement uh, in Lystra was because he was sick. He probably would have passed the city by, but he was sick and he had to stop there. So he said, well, I might as well start preaching to these people. So that's another Jaker. Paul's illness, he doesn't go where he wants to travel, but it ends up being an amazing movement that starts in, in Lystra. So you see this, this story of suffering here, these J-curves that keep happening. Um, yes, very good. So yes, these are the J-curves, the story of suffering. And Paul is giving these three churches that he's writing to this encouragement, that we enter the kingdom of God through tribulations. So then finally then, then we will see the hope for suffering. We've seen the reality, the story, and now the hope for suffering. So come back again for a moment to this word that we've been meditating on, flipsies, this Greek word. What's very interesting is that a fourth of the uses of this word occur in 2 Corinthians. So Paul's epistle to, in, to the Corinthians, the second one, um, th- that is the epistle of flipsies, this word that we've been talking about, this compression And the theme that we're discussing here, the story of suffering, is the dominant theme in 2 Corinthians. It's all over Paul, of course, but especially 2 Corinthians. And of course, 2 Corinthians was written just six years after this took place, after Paul was stoned. Six years go by, and Paul writes 2 Corinthians. So it's very interesting when Paul's unpacking this theme for us. If we want to know more about we enter the kingdom of God through tribulations. We want to know more about that teaching. Second Corinthians is your book. That's where that is unpacked. So we're going to look at Second Corinthians chapter 1. I'll read you just a short excerpt. And, and pay attention here. I'll emphasize when he uses our special word, I'll emphasize that. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. For if we are afflicted, that's our word, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. And this now is talking about the time Paul was stoned and um, a faction of Jews was chasing them about of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So you must also help us by prayer 
so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So that's an unpacked, zoomed out version of our verse there in, 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 uh, in Acts 14. And these are Paul's reflections on his experience six years later. He looks back on all that happened and he feels tremendous hope. Why would he feel tremendous hope? Well, I'll give you two reasons why Paul feels this tremendous hope. First, he shares in Christ's sufferings. What does that mean? How can you share in Christ's sufferings? If you've come across this in reading through the New Testament, you'll see this a lot. This is one of the most dominant themes in all of Paul's letters. Union with Christ, becoming one with him, sharing in his sufferings. But that's really mysterious, isn't it? And Paul's suffering, entering into one of our J-curves, was in a mysterious way sharing in Jesus' suffering. Well, think about it. Did not also Jesus experience what Paul experienced? When Jesus, as we celebrate on Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphant uh, entry into Jerusalem, the crowds say, Hosanna, Hosanna, this is the king, this is our guy, this is the one we've been waiting for, that's the Messiah. And just a few days later, that same crowd is now saying that they want him executed as a criminal. They want him killed. Jesus felt the disappointment, he felt the sadness, and he felt the grief of that event in the same way that Paul did. So when we suffer, we are sharing and participating in the suffering of Jesus. He has been where we are. He has been where you are. And God knows what it is like to be betrayed, to be mocked, and to be gossiped about. He knows what it is like to see a friend go astray who he's cared so much about for years. So when we share in Jesus' suffering, we can have comfort knowing that he has been through exactly what we have been through. The second reason that sharing in Christ's sufferings is an encouragement to us is that uh, Paul feels, um, the the second reason that Paul feels hope is uh, that it teaches us to rely on God for everything. So here in verse 9 in in the 2 Corinthians passage, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul says the reason that we got stoned, the reason that we got beaten and chased from city to city was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God for everything. And what's so interesting about this is that Paul follows this by asking for and glorying in prayer. So when we are at the bottom of the J-curve, and you know what that feels like, when you're completely helpless, when your family members are not treating you as they ought to, when when things at work are going terribly, when your kid is sick. You you know what that feels like when you're at the bottom of that J-curve. We cannot live at the bottom there without prayer. That's Paul's point here. And that's that's how this text can make a practical difference in your life this week. So we understand the reality of suffering, and we have a biblical map for our suffering, understanding that it goes in a J-shape. And now we can understand uh, that there is hope. In every story of suffering that we have, there will be a resurrection. In every instance, every instance of suffering that we go through, there's going to be a resurrection on the other side. Now, of course, we don't, it doesn't always happen in the way we expect it. It doesn't always happen in the way that we plan it in our own timing. But there will be a resurrection in every story of suffering that God's people go through. So how can we pray with this map in mind. 
How can we pray with the J-curve as a new way of looking at our suffering? Now, these J-curves can last several minutes or months or even years, of course, but uh, my encouragement to you would be to follow up on your prayers, to keep track of them, Keep track on the relationships in your life and stay in the story, understanding that every instance of suffering that you're seeing is going to end in a resurrection. So we expect and believe that there will be that resurrection so we can look for what God is doing. A very practical tip. um, So as as some of you know, I use prayer cards. That's how I kind of keep track of my prayers. And um, one thing I recently started doing because of the advice of a friend, a, uh, a practical tip, um, recently, a friend of mine suggested, hey, this J-curve thing that you're talking about, that's really neat, that's really helped me out. So I, he drew uh, a J-curve of what his wife's daily life would look like. I thought, that's really neat. So I drew that uh, same thing for Angela. Geneva is our little three-year-old. Angela is my wife. Geneva's been giving us a run for our money as a three-year-old. Um, technically, she turns three next week, but I've rounded her up for some time. So she's given us a run for our money, right? She is, uh, can be very demanding, very disobedient, a little whiny, it's true. And Angela is home most of the time with Geneva, so she bears the brunt of our little redhead's uh, exciting behavior. So I have a prayer card for Angela that I pray through every day, and on the back of it, I drew a little J-curve. And on it, I just wrote what her life is like each day uh, dealing with Geneva. So at, the, at the, the J, as it starts, it starts with Geneva's anger, her impatience, her disobedience. And then down at the bottom, when Angela chooses to respond with gentleness and self-control, trusting in God's promises for uh, parenting Geneva, that's the bottom of the J curve. Because what do parents want to do when your kids are acting out, right? You want to smack them. You, right? you, want, you want to yell at them. You want to respond with the same level of emotion they're responding with, right? You meet anger with anger. You meet impatience with impatience. But when Angela responds in gentleness, right, then the J-curve that comes on the other side, the resurrection, is that eventually, we, we trust, G- Geneva will see Jesus. She will understand what God is like, and her behavior will improve. So I pray through this every day, this little J shape. I think about uh, the story of parenting a toddler. And that's how I can pray for somebody else. That's how I can pray for Angela. If we start praying for each other like this, it could change everything. It could change the way that we think about suffering, the way that we're going through things. It could change parenting. It could change how we deal with illnesses and diagnoses. It could change everything. And that would be my encouragement to you. If we start praying with this map in mind, with the reality of suffering, with uh, the story of suffering, and with the hope that comes on the other side, it can change everything. So would you pray with me in light of that? Father, I just thank you so much for this text. I thank you for uh, Paul's words and his reflections several years after this event of getting stoned. Um, Lord, you know our sufferings. Please be with us this week. Help us to see that there will be a resurrection in each one of our sufferings. Help us to pray with this in mind, and I pray that you would just amaze each one of us with the story that you'll write this week. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.